Well, good morning. Good to be with you today. My name is Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carney E. Free Church. We've got a, a full crowd here today. It's great. Um, two quick notes on that before I jump in. Uh, when we're full like this, let's, let's be sure we move toward the center. It'd be real helpful for those who are coming in a little bit later. And you don't need to move right now, but um, future weeks. And then uh, also I just want, want you all to know that uh, if you like this kind of music that you received uh, this morning, that you worship well with this morning, that band, uh, more contemporary style of music. We also have another service actually at 915 that has the same exact music and it's in uh, our North Auditorium called The Venue. And it's a little bit more of a smaller, more intimate feel, same contemporary music, uh, same message uh, that's piped through by video to it. Uh, but uh, a live site pastor, Kevin Andres, and then also... Uh, live contemporary worship there. So if you like this kind of music, but you prefer an earlier service, uh, that would be uh, another option for you as well. As I see, we're just about full in here, which was a good problem to have. Well, uh, we are in week two of this series that we've titled Social, and um, it's probably helpful to just take a moment and review where we've been to this point. This week, as you saw already, is the reality of marriage conflict. Marriage conflict is going to happen for all of us. Last week, uh, as we gathered, we talked about, I guess it was two weeks ago, we talked about uh, kind of the marriage blueprint that God gives to us. And one thing that a husband can do to really uh, build up and strengthen his wife, and one thing that a wife can do to really build up and strengthen her husband. And we just talked about this reality that is true for all of us, that if you want a great marriage, it takes work. And uh, we noted this on a number of occasions uh, two weeks ago, and I think it's worth noting again today that if you want anything great in life that we are a part of, to get to it takes work. So let, let's all say this together as we get started here this morning. If you want a great marriage, it takes, it takes work. It won't happen on accident. And so by review, what we discussed two weeks ago was that uh, one thing that a man can do for his wife is to offer the gift of presence. He can love his wife, he can build up his marriage by offering the gift of presence, refusing to neglect his wife, but to be there, to offer one-on-one -on -one time, to help around the house, to encourage her for all the great things though that she does around the house, offer the gift of presence, and that takes work for many men, but it's, it's well worth it. And for women, oftentimes the, the greatest, most important thing that you can do for your husband, at least a good starting point, is to build your husband up by propping him up with respect. We noted that if a man doesn't feel respected by his wife, he feels cut off at the knees. And so whatever a wife can do to demonstrate respect will help strengthen her husband to become the kind of sacrificial leader that she wants him to be and that God intends him to be. Now this is the marriage blueprint that is stated four different times in the scripture. We call it a, a blueprint because it's stated so often from so many different authors in the scriptures that this is really God's intended plan, the starting point, the prescription for what marriage should look like at the very beginning. And then we go back to it again and again. It goes like this from Matthew 19.5. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, likewise a woman will leave her father and mother, they will cleave to one another, he will cleave to his wife, and then they'll become one flesh. Let me unpack that for just a moment. We 
we mentioned this verse last time, but I really didn't explain the meaning behind that. To leave means you're no longer under the banner, the umbrella of mom and dad. You're now under the banner, the umbrella of one another. A new fresh start together. That you make your own decisions for, for your future together. Always, always honoring mom and dad, but you make your own decisions. A new fresh start. You've left the other relationships as first priority to make this a first priority. And then you cleave to one another. And the word cleave there in the Greek language has this idea of glue. Adhesive. That we are cleaving together emotionally, spiritually, financially, sexually. We become one flesh together. And a cleave has this idea, again, of adhesive. And if you can imagine, you got two pieces of wood with glue in the center. Uh, the longer one doesn't represent anyone. Okay? Don't send me any email on that. Okay? They're both equal, just two different pieces of wood. Okay, and they're, they're cleaved together by an adhesive, a glue. Now, if you have this super glue between these two pieces of wood, and I oftentimes share this with couples in premarital counseling, you know, if you try to break these apart, what happens to the wood? Splinters all over the place, right? You get splinters from this piece of wood onto this piece, and from this piece of wood onto this. And that's a powerful portrait of exactly what happens when a couple cleaves together and then they divide. There's never a complete, easy, clean division. No, the divorce takes a pound of flesh off of each one such that a piece of him is stuck to her and a piece of her remains stuck to him. And so what we want to do here this morning is talk about this reality that we're all going to face marital conflict. It's just inevitable. But how do we face marital conflict in a way that actually can help bring us together even more, that it can actually reinforce the bond that we have when we cleave together? Because I am convinced that in our marriages, uh, God would intend to refine us. He would intend to grow us spiritually through our marriages. And one of the greatest ways that he grows us spiritually through our marriages is through the tension that we sometimes experience in marriage. And then we have to pray together and we have to go to the Lord together. And in the process, we find that the bond is even stronger than we thought it was. So tension, conflict, is not always a bad thing. It can at times be a good thing that actually God would use to bring us together. Now, the truth is, a lot of people today simply don't find, find marriage attractive anymore. Isn't that true? I, I mean, marriage is way down in our culture. Uh, in cities and in rural areas, statistically, people are getting married far less frequently than they were even a generation ago. Meanwhile, cohabitation rates are way up, right? And what's the main reason that people cohabit? They cohabit because they believe they'll get an opportunity to have a test run, and then by that test run, they'll figure out if they are really for each other. And I get it, that makes sense intuitively, but the counterintuitive truth is those who cohabit actually end up divorcing at a far greater rate than those who don't. We'll get to that in a moment, the reason for that, but, but all this to say, uh, marriage is is no longer held in esteem in our culture today. 
In her book, I Do and I Don't, A History of Marriage in the Movies, film historian Janine Basinger describes a trend that has marked movies for the past 40 years, the lack of interest in married life, incapable of imagining an exciting marriage Hollywood has ditched marriage and focused only on the wedding. Listen to what she says. Hollywood kept only the ritual, making movie after movie about weddings. Wedding crashers, four weddings and a funeral, 27 dresses, many others starring Katherine Hagel and Meg Grine. <laughs> Since no one felt the need for marriage, you could have sex, children, and cohabitation without it, Films elevated the event and made it the main point. The big wedding in which you could have all the decorations, the food, the booze, the outfits, without having to be bored by marriage problems. Now, if Hollywood is any indicator, and it usually is, there are probably people in this room here today who see marriage as kind of dull. Ironically, there is a really good example, a good recent example, from a movie about traditional marriage. It's, uh, it's ironic because it, it's not between two humans, it's between two ogres. Did you ever see Shrek? It's a good movie. It's a good movie. And, and in, in the movie Shrek, Shrek is in love with Fiona, this beautiful princess. And surprisingly, Fiona's in love with Shrek. And... Uh, she gets scared because she knows the truth, that when the sun goes down, she turns back into an ogre. And so she tries to hide from him when the sun goes down, that she wouldn't see him as she really is. And as the sun goes down, one day Shrek sees Fiona, and Fiona's frightened by all this. Maybe he'll leave me in this. Maybe he won't stay committed to me. And do you remember what Shrek says? He says, I kind of like you that way. I kind of like you like that. To actually become increasingly unified with another person through richer or through poorer, in sickness and in health, through weight gain and weight loss, through all the hairstyles and all the hair loss, and then to be able to say, I kind of like you that way. That's it, my friends. That's it. And to hold on to that into your 50s, into your 60s, into your 70s, into your 80s, that's what provides a legacy that can strengthen and stabilize a family for generations to come. The root of a healthy marriage is this. I've left all and I am Stuck to you. Not stuck with you. I'm stuck to you. I'm not going anywhere. We're going to have all kinds of issues. We're going to have all kinds of challenges. But I am stuck to you in thick and thin. We're going to work it out. So what we're going to do here though this morning is look at five practical ways from the scriptures to fight for your marriage. And I know that there might be singles in the room that say this is irrelevant. It's not. This is very relevant for all of your relationships. There are others in this room who uh, have no problems in their marriage. Great. This can be proactive medicine. 
There are others that are needing a little, a little bit of a tune-up right now. And others still in a room this size, I, I guarantee you there are people in a room this size that are on the brink of throwing in the towel. And wherever you are in your relationships right now, commit yourself to taking one of these in the next 30 minutes. Just one idea that you will begin to apply this week. And then if you want to study it further, we have a marriage resource list on a wall in the back here. A uh, number of different resources, number of books you'll see on a wall. There's a Weekend to Remember conference co coming up in both Lincoln and Omaha, and it's a great way to get a refresh off your marriage. But we commit to working on it. Here's number one. Seek covenant, not consumerism. Now, it's really easy in the culture that we live in to bring a consumer ethic into our marriages. Let me tell you what I mean by that. You have... Um, Old drapery in your house, as Susie and I recently had. What did we do? We discarded it. We got new stuff that we like a lot better. You have an old couch that gets a little tattered. What do you do? Maybe after a little while you sell it and you find a new one. You have an old box TV. You find someone to buy it from you, if you can. Or more likely you'll be giving them money even as they take the TV with them. Okay, we live in this culture where it's out with the old and in with the new based on what satisfies me right now. That's just how we live in our culture. It's a throwaway culture. And tragically, many people today increasingly are bringing that ethic into their marriages. And what that results in is this idea of a contract that you will fulfill my needs and I am a consumer and you are meant to meet my needs, and as soon as you're no longer meeting my needs, we'll be done. But a covenant, instead of that, is this binding commitment before God and before others. A covenant is supposed to be an unbreakable promise. When covenant is spoken of in the Bible, it's always an unbreakable promise. And that's, that's really what's envisioned when we stand before a company of witnesses and family and friends and God himself and say, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, I choose you for life. God help me. It's this passionate idea that I'm committed to working it out, even though I know it'll cost me, even though I know it will mean tremendous effort and sacrifice. We are for one another. Pastor Tim Keller, who's pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, has written a wonderful book titled The Meaning of Marriage. And in it, he explains that people from his church regularly come up to him and tell him, I just want to be with someone where love comes easily, someone I am compatible with, which we all can relate to. Many of us say that as well. And Keller always responds to them, why do you think you find that? He says that that's not the nature of this activity. The nature of marriage isn't simply easy. It's not something where you say, oh, I can just do that easily. And he tells people, that's like saying, I just want to be able to hit a 95-mile-an-hour fastball without having to work on it. That's not the nature of the activity. If you want to learn how to hit a fastball, it takes a ton of work. You want to learn how to have a great marriage, how to be compatible together. It takes a whole lot of work. You see, we're told that we enter into marriage with Mr. Right. How'd that go for you, ladies? 
you never marry Mr. Right. You just think you do at the time. And he becomes Mr. Right over time as you realize that it's not actually his job to complete you, but you guys will complement each other as you sacrifice mutually over the course of time. And as we understand in our marriages that it's not our job to complete each other. No, Christ is who completes us. And we need friends, and we need a church, and we need a great community. And there are some things that our spouses will complete in us. But, but if you hold on to that idea, that's a consumeristic ethic that will have negative consequences. Jeff Bridges, who is an Oscar-winning actor, identified his work, worst character trait. And I didn't mean to have so many Hollywood references here this morning. I'll have none next week, okay? But his worst character trait, he said this, not loving enough, not having enough compassion, enough empathy or wisdom. My wife and I have been married for 36 years, which is a great accomplishment. And he says, I'm deeply in love with her, but every once in a while we'll get into what I like to refer to as our deep, ancient battle. It's always very elusive, and it's hard to find the real kernel of it, but basically it's about this. You don't get it. You don't get what it's like to be me. Neither of us really understands what it's really like to be that other person. Anyone else identify with that? Can I get a whole bunch of hands raising together right now? <laughs> I can't tell you how much I resonate with that. Honey, why don't you just get me by now? I mean, we've been married 12 years. We should be experts. I'm up here preaching on it. I said that to Susie a couple years ago, actually. You know, shouldn't we just be so simpatico by now, I told her? She'll be so simpatico that you just know when I have that melancholy look on my face exactly what I need before I have to ask for it. She said, Adrian, <laughs> as I've told you before, it doesn't work that way. We're just going to have to keep on working at it, she said. We're going to have to keep on trying to explain ourselves such that we really understand one another in our many differences and in our various backgrounds from our family of origin and the way we do things. We're going to have to keep working on it. That is a covenant mentality. It's not easy. We won't always understand each other. You don't completely get me, but I'm going to work toward it as difficult as it is because we're going to stay glued together seek covenant not consumerism and then number two seek resolution not my rights how do we fight for each other when we choose what we're really going to fight about again fights are going to come up conflict is going to arise so how do we fight for each other it strikes me that there are at least three ways that we typically do conflict one is what i call stonewalling Okay, you can imagine that, this avoidance to conflict idea. Uh, there's this elephant in the room, do you see it? Okay, here's a rug. Honey, let's, let's, let's get together and sweep it under it, okay? We'll pretend it's not here. And you do that enough times over enough years, what happens is you lose all feeling. And you start to operate in parallel universes together because you haven't taken the time and the emotional energy to work through the challenging stuff that God uses to bring us together. 
Avoidance, stonewalling, actually has tremendous negative repercussions later on because it can lead to people kind of shutting off their hearts to one another. Now, for many, the pendulum swings in the opposite direction, and people go into battle mode, and they turn in uh, conflicts or, or um, items of disagreement into opportunities to demonstrate how right I am and how wrong you are. And the problem with this idea, this battle motif, is we start to yell and scream and sometimes shout over each other such that we're not really hearing each other. And inevitably, well, when you get into conflict in marriage like that, that's a battle idea, inevitably you have one person that emerges as the winner and the other person that emerges as, as the loser. And no one wants to be the loser when it comes to a marriage conflict. It's a difficult, difficult place to be. So listen to Proverbs 17.1 as a counterexample to this. It says, better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of, street, of, of feasting with strife. I love the way the author of Proverbs puts that. Better a dry crust of bread with peace and quiet. You ever had a meal that you just were so excited for? You're looking forward to filet mignon with asparagus and red velvet cake for dessert. And then you have a fight with your husband or your wife. You have a fight with one of your kids. And you would much rather have a crust of bread than that meal in that moment. I mean, we would rather have peace and quiet with a crust of bread than feasting at the banquet table with constant strife. The battle motif has to go. Third option is seeking resolution. One of my favorite activities when I do marriage counseling is to ask the engaged couple or the uh, married couple to make a list of um, rules for combat. And they look up a whole bunch of verses from Proverbs and many other places in the Bible. And out of those verses and out of their own family experiences, they say, this is what we commit to do and commit to not doing in our marriage when we have conflict. We're never going to do this. We're always going to do this with each other. We're going to forgive in this way. I'm going to be sensitive to these raw spots in you, and you be sensitive to these raw spots in me. And this is a proactive way to prevent conflicts from getting really, really ugly. And it just acknowledges the reality that inevitably, over the course of decades, offense is going to happen. You know, when we're in relationships with people, over the course of 10, 20, 30, 50 years, we're going to offend each other sometimes. And it helps us to ask the question, do I want, in the middle of this offense, do I want to be right? Or do I want this relationship and some of us need to ask ourselves that question when it comes to how we do conflict. Do I want to prove how right I am? Or do I mostly want this relationship? And perhaps the most important way that we can seek resolution rather than rights is to really guard our tongue and to measure our words when conflict arises. Proverbs twelve eighteen says this, The words of the reckless pierce like swords. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. 
I know we've all experienced this. That someone is reckless with their words. They don't measure what they say before they type it on Facebook. They don't measure what they say as they're getting into conflict with their kids or their parents or their spouse. And their words pierce like swords to the soul. You've been in those situations, and I have too, where you say something that's kind of intense and attacking, and, 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 and she kind of gets defensive and, and says something nasty under her breath, and so you say something nasty to her, and then you go your separate ways, and you both have this intensity of regret. Uh, the, the, the tongue of the wise instead says, your name is safe in my mouth. The tongue of the wise brings healing. The tongue of the wise says, okay, how do I bring this up in a way that does not add offense to the frustration that we both feel right now? Better a patient person, better a patient man, Proverbs 16, than a warrior, one with self-control, than one who takes a suit. No, we got to understand that real strength is oftentimes found in men and women who do not exercise their strength in an authoritarian matter. That's the world's way of doing things. We exercise as Christians our strength, our influence, in a manner that is patient and gentle, that comes under, that seeks to build up, that blesses with our words. Look at Ephesians 4 with me. Why don't you turn there in your Bible? Ephesians 4 is a beautiful passage. And I know I'm looking at a number of different verses here, though, this morning, but the Bible is just so full, so jam-packed with verses, though, that speak to how we deal with conflict. And we'll go to Ephesians 4, starting at verse 26. And uh, this is the Apostle Paul instructing his church in Ephesus how they deal with conflict with each other, but then also in their marriages. And he says this, starting at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Okay, so we will get angry, but don't sin in the midst of your anger by flying off the handle. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil to get a foothold in your life if you hold on to bitterness and anger and resentment, he says. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let me just pull a couple passages, a couple ideas out of these passages as it relates to conflict. The first thing I notice here is that we are to seek to build up rather than break down. How are we building up rather than breaking down our spouses? I got to ask myself that. To what extent am I allowing unwholesome, unhelpful words to come out of my mouth? But instead, Paul says, only use those words that are helpful for building others up in love according to their needs as fits the occasion that they might have. 
So to what extent am I using my words not to correct so much, but to connect? The truth is, all of us will need correction from time to time. But if we get known as the people who are constantly correcting our kids, constantly correcting our spouses, they won't want to be around us. I don't want to be that kind of pastor. I don't want to be that kind of father, that kind of husband. Instead, as Gay Tillotson said so well last week, I want to be the kind of pastor, the kind of husband, the kind of father that seeks to connect first and correct later on and connect a whole lot and correct sparingly. What if my wife said of me, he's so encouraging to me. He seeks to connect with me rather than to correct me. He wants to build me up to be the best woman that I can become. That's what I want my wife to be able to say about me. So the challenge for me, though, this week, and perhaps for you as well, would be to write down verse 29 and insert your spouse's name in that verse. Or maybe your boss's. Or maybe a friend's. Or a parent's. And so mine goes like this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building Susie up. How am I going to build my bride up? As fits the occasion that it may give grace to Susie as she hears it. That's my challenge. Not my challenge for you. You write down your own spouse's name or someone else's name, but that's my challenge. To personalize the scripture and say, Adrian, how are you doing this? To build up, not breaking down. Okay, enough said on that. Number four, seek to forgive quickly, as Paul noted here. Seek to forgive quickly. A number of years ago, a good friend of mine who was also a seminary professor, at the time I was just getting to know him, but uh, we were new to marriage. I'd probably been married two years at that time, and uh, we were going through a food line in a buffet, and he asked me at the moment, uh, as we're going through the line, so how's your marriage going to, to this point? Well, that's quite a question to ask as we're going through the buffet line. And uh, I said, it's going fine. I mumbled a few things. And then he said, can I tell you the secret, Adrian, of our 50 years of great marriage? Well, yes, please. Please do tell me. He said two simple things. We committed together to dealing with every conflict before we went to bed. And then number two, after we dealt with the conflict, we committed never to bringing an old issue up again. Let old dogs die. Let old issues be in the past and deal with stuff as it comes up. And then do not let the sun go down in your anger, as Paul says. Now, I think this is much like the other Proverbs though, that we have read. Some of you need a day or two to process the conflicts though, that you get in, and that's okay. That's really okay. But what he's saying there is, don't just let it go. Don't just sweep it under the rug. Don't ignore it for the next weeks or months because if you do that, it gets worse later on. Put it on the calendar. Say, we're going to talk about this in the next couple days. Or maybe tonight, if you have the ability to do that, but before the sun goes down. And then as you deal with it, apologize quickly and forgive quickly. Verse 32, be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another. How? As Christ Jesus forgave you. Never on our own. Never by our own power. But always looking up at the cross and recognizing the magnitude of God's love for you and me. That he forgave us far more than we ever have to forgive 
one another. That out of his tenderness, out of his compassion, out of his kindness, it's his kindness that led us to repentance. It's his joy that brought us to himself and reconciled us to the Father. It's the love of the Son that has always forgiven us and thereby as we live out of that, we have a different reservoir, a different well by which we are able to forgive those who hurt us. Now I know anytime I speak on this, I'm saying something that's really hard. But you know what's harder? Living with unforgiveness. I mean, forgiveness is tremendously difficult. I've been wronged deeply in my life. I've forgiven things that I won't ever say on stage. And I know you have too. But I've had to forgive. Otherwise, that becomes a poison that captures me. Otherwise, I turn into resentment and grudge holding and anger and bitterness. The only thing harder than forgiveness is unforgiveness. So we ask the Lord to give us a capacity to forgive, especially our spouses. And then finally, we, we seek to pray together often. As we're asking the Lord for capacity to forgive, so also we come together and we, we pray together. Think of your marriage like this. It's a triangle. And at the top of the triangle is Christ. And at the lower corners of the triangle are husband and wife. And as husband and wife move toward Christ together, what are they doing? They're moving toward each other. As we're all in our marriages moving toward Christ, we're simultaneously moving toward one another. And so as we pray together, we bond together. As we look toward Christ, as we study the scriptures and brag on Christ together, we talk about the things that he's teaching us together, we bond together, we move toward each other. And I recognize, though, that many people don't like praying out loud and it's uncomfortable for some, but we can grow in this practice just like we grow in any other practice. And so it can be as simple as this. In the morning before you go off to work or in the evening but before you go to bed, take 30 seconds to hold hands and to say, I thank you, God, for our marriage. It's not perfect, but I thank you. I thank you, God, for our kids. They're not perfect, but we thank you for them. Or, God, we're dealing with some kind of frustration right now. Would you please help us? The Bible promises to give you wisdom. So, God, would you please give us wisdom as we are encountering this issue where we're not seeing eye to eye. Please help us, God. That's a great prayer. God loves to answer that prayer. Or we're dealing with this issue with our son. He won't listen to us. We're not sure what to do, God. Well, God, would you grant us wisdom on how we can help our son to feel comfortable? Our daughter is being bullied. Our daughter is being hurt. Help us to know how we stand up for her. God, we're not sure what to do. Well, guess what? If anyone lacks wisdom, he or she can ask God for it, and God gives generously to all who ask without finding fault, James 1.5. So you ask together, and the God who is able will bring you together as you ask together. That's the nature of prayer. Nothing but prayer has helped me and Susie to submit more readily to one another out of reverence for Christ. Nothing but prayer 
has helped us to come to unity on difficult decisions. Nothing but prayer has helped us to relinquish the need to always be right and to seek resolution instead. And nothing but prayer has enabled us to forgive when we've hurt one another. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we talk about the reality of conflict in marriage. We must confess that we, we can't live up to your expectations on our own. Many of us have tried to, and we've fallen flat on our faces. We know it's just impossible. And so this is where we really need the Holy Spirit of God to come and help us right now. I wonder... Uh, you're sitting next to a husband or a wife or a son or daughter, a mother or father, maybe you just hold their hand right now. And as you hold their hand, maybe I could just pray for you. Father, for all of these relationships represented in this room right now, we ask for your help. We all know the pain of feeling divided from a son or daughter, a mother or father. We all know the great pain of feeling separated from our wife or husband. So we ask God that you would unify us by the great advocate, the Holy Spirit who is in us and who helps us. We ask, Lord, that even at this moment we would look at the cross and recognize that Jesus went that far grant us peace with the Father, that we now are forgiven and loved by the Father. And so also, Lord, you might give us the capacity to forgive one another. There is no person in this room who has not failed in relationships. And so we all confess to you our great need, that you would help us where we have fallen short, that you would forgive us grant us a greater capacity to work on this beautiful thing called marriage. Looking carefully to the cross, the one who promises to be the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who promises to help us in our weaknesses. Lord Jesus, would you help all of those here today? Help me in my marriage. Help us to be the kind of people who readily admit that we need your guidance, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray together. And all God's people say, amen.